I remember some controversy around the celebration of Columbus Day when I was in grade school. Though it's a little embarrassing to talk about it from this vantage point. You see, we were not led to question the very notion of discovering a land where people already lived, but rather the subversive possibility that was presented that perhaps Columbus was not the first person to discover America. The first person, meaning European, to land on these shores. We were told about this fellow named Leif Erikson and Viking settlements that dated to some 500 years before Columbus made his way to this continent. Being of Scandinavian descent myself and a Minnesota Vikings fan to boot, I was supportive of what I considered a radical rewrite of accepted wisdom. It was not until some time later, as revolutionary material from the movements of the 60s and 70s was passed from my older brothers down to me, that I began to dig just a little deeper into this piece of history. Or if not digging much deeper into actual history, (laughs) at least asking some clarifying questions. How can one be said to have discovered a land where people already reside? I suppose in the same way that people say that they just discovered this fabulous restaurant or just discovered this wonderful piece of music. The restaurant was already there, so presumably someone knew about it, if only those who were running the restaurant and cooking and serving the food. The music was already heard, if only by the musicians who created it in the first place. My discovery is only a discovery to me, and my assumption is to you, which is why I am so excited to tell you about it. And I don't mean to trivialize. The stakes for Columbus's faux discovery were astronomically higher and far more tragic. (coughs) It is not a pretty story. Christopher Columbus, describing his first encounters with the Arawak people who greeted the sailors coming ashore with food and water and other gifts, wrote, they willingly traded everything they owned, They would make fine servants. With 50 men, we could subjugate them all and make them do whatever we want. Later, from his base on Haiti, Columbus sent expedition after expedition into the interior. In the year 1495, they went on a great slave raid, rounded up 1,500 Arawak men, women, and children, put them in pens guarded by Spaniards and dogs, then picked the 500 best specimens to load onto ships. Columbus later wrote, Let us, in the name of the Holy Trinity, go on sending all the slaves that can be sold. Alas, many of the now enslaved Arawak people died in captivity. And, unable to find the gold that he had promised investors, Columbus and his men ordered all persons 14 years or older to collect a certain quantity of gold every three months. 
when they brought it, they were given copper tokens to hang around their neck. Persons found without a copper token had their hands cut off and bled to death. By the year 1515, there were perhaps 50,000 Indians left. By 1550, there were 500. A report of the year 1650 shows none of the original Arawaks or their descendants left on the island. Somehow, this did not find its way into the poem from which this sermon derives its title, in 1492. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. He had three ships and left from Spain. He sailed through sunshine, wind, and rain. Remember that one? Here is how the events just described by Howard Zinn are covered. Indians, Indians, Columbus cried. His heart was filled with joyful pride. But India, the land was not. It was the Bahamas, and it was hot. The Arawakan natives were very nice. They gave the sailors food and spice. Columbus sailed on to find some gold. Sailed on to find some gold to bring back home, as he'd been told. Just a little different. Though Columbus Day has never been an official city holiday in 2017, the San Luis Obispo City Council unanimously voted to recognize Indigenous Peoples Day in its stead. The proclamation reads, in part, Indigenous Peoples Day shall reflect the ongoing struggles of Indigenous people of this land and celebrate the thriving culture and value that Indigenous people add to our city. The Northern Chumash tribe issued a statement in appreciation of the action which brought an end to, quote, the honoring of an explorer who helped initiate the decimation of native tribes across the country, unquote. And called the recognition of Indigenous Peoples Day a tremendous step toward educating and being inclusive of all the history of this area It is about truth-telling. It is about truth-telling. Not everyone feels that way, of course. Those who support a celebration of Christopher Columbus decry what they see as not truth-telling, but revisionist history. Howard Zinn points out that this is not revising history at all. The atrocities were always described in the history and the scholarly books, sometimes in the words of Christopher Columbus himself from his journals. You can't get much more historical than that. But these facts were buried in a mass of other information as if it was just not that important to the bigger story. Supporters of the Columbus Day celebration wonder out loud why people need to focus only on the negative aspects of the story. Zinn asks why there has been little attention paid to outright genocide at all. 
Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it, wrote philosopher George Santayana. This has been adapted in various formulations and often appears as something like those who forget their history are doomed to repeat it. But something even more insidious is going on here in the United States of America. It is not about forgetting. It is about refusing to acknowledge the historical importance and ongoing impact of the most cruel and brutal parts of our history. Along with the truly brazen justification of such acts as divinely sanctioned. I am talking about it today not because I wish to pass judgment on historical figures, but because how we view and understand and acknowledge those people and those parts of our history have ramifications for how we live and the decisions we make and the atrocities we are willing to overlook or justify or dismiss or not today. If we think the atrocities committed by Columbus and his men and the ongoing atrocities committed against indigenous peoples by settlers and armies and political leaders throughout U.S. history were not that important in the grand scheme of things or simply necessary, if regrettable, incidents in our destiny, why would we not accept similar atrocities today if we considered the cause great enough? Why are we afraid to even ask the questions that history poses? I'm bringing up these terrible things of the past not to put Christopher Columbus on trial. As Zinn says, what possible good would that do? But to say that how we understand and interpret this and other parts of our history has everything to do with making decisions about who we are now. Who is the we in we the people who are the you and me in this land is your land. This land is my land. When we beseech the divine singing or saying, God bless America, what exactly is the almighty meant to bless? I am bringing this piece of our history up because it has everything to do with how we decide who belongs. Way back there in seminary school, when we were studying the book of Exodus and the liberation of the Hebrew people from their Egyptian captors, I was reminded by a wise professor of the importance of reading stories from many different perspectives. We were talking about the obviously central importance of this story in Jewish tradition, their freedom from slavery, and their entrance into the promised land. We talked about how African-American slaves in the United States claimed this as a story about their eventual liberation from bondage. Then my professor said, how do you think a Native American would read the story? Who would they identify with? This puzzled me. Well, who was in the promised land, he asked. The Canaanites. Right, the Canaanites. The promised land was not empty when the Hebrew people arrived. It was already inhabited. Yet here come these strangers saying that it's theirs, that God has given it to them. Wonder how that felt. 
Native Americans could tell you. In 2014, then Fox News commentator Bill O'Reilly, who I see in this week's New York Times book review is again on the bestseller list, O'Reilly, echoing a fairly widespread sentiment, told undocumented immigrant and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Jose Antonio Vargas in an interview that he didn't, quote, deserve to be here. Listening to Vargas explain how a proposed executive order in 2014 would allow him to visit his mother for the first time since he was 12 years old without fearing that he would never be allowed back into this country, O'Reilly said, it is a compassionate move, but it may not be a just move because you and the other people here illegally don't deserve to be here. Don't deserve to be here. If it seems O'Reilly is rather unreflective in his notions of what is a just move and who he has decided deserves to be here, we can gain some insight from his 2017 article on Christopher Columbus. He writes, on the island of Hispaniola, present-day Haiti in the Dominican Republic, Columbus did establish slavery to support various laborious enterprises. Not good. Slave labor was common at the time the world over, but that's no excuse. However, that was a minor part of the Columbus business, he quickly adds. Mostly, Columbus was a brilliant navigator who opened up the world for travel. Mostly? Partly, he was a slave trader and a terrorist who justified his actions as religious fervor, but mostly, he was a brilliant navigator. Further, attempting to put Columbus's actions in context, O'Reilly writes, every person on the planet has done bad things, but it is the totality of a human being that should be the litmus test. Outrageous as it is, O'Reilly's focus on the person of Columbus is beside the point. I would agree with O'Reilly that Columbus was an absolutely crucial figure in United States and world history, even though he never touched the shores of what is now the United States. But that is the point, to admit that this country is built upon the atrocities committed by Columbus and the many brutalities that were carried out thereafter. It is built upon those who were brutally murdered, and enslaved, oppressed, robbed of their dignity, and put into the service of the construction of this country. These acts were not aberrations. They were crucial to the project. And the question we must answer today is not whether Columbus was a terrorist or mostly something else. The question we must answer today is considering that these acts were vital to the project of building what we know as the United States, was it worth it? Would we justify such acts again if the purpose was important enough? Where do we draw the line if any lines are to be drawn?
And how does wrestling with these questions from our history help to shape our answers to the questions we are asking ourselves today about who belongs here? A story of a promised land can look very different if you don't happen to be one of the chosen people. A story of manifest destiny can look like tragedy if you happen to be in its path as it moves ruthlessly, relentlessly forward. What some call revisionist history, Howard Zinn's work, for example, is simply history with a change in focus. He was crystal clear in his intent to adopt a viewpoint, quote, skeptical of governments and their attempts through politics and culture to ensnare ordinary people in a giant web of nationhood pretending to a common interest. Think about that. I often hear the phrase, each nation has the right to. Each nation has the right to protect its borders. Each nation has the right to determine who is a citizen and who deserves the rights granted to citizens. Each nation has the right to define its own future. But remember, a nation is not a real thing. It is a thought construct to which people decide to assent or not. A nation does not decide who belongs. People do. And when we consider that decision, we cannot but take a long look at the realities of our own history. Looking at history from a variety of viewpoints leads us at our best to create structures and organizations and communities that support us all. Expanding our vision can seem overwhelming, but we are strengthened thereby. The civil rights movement, the women's movement, the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender movement, people willing to claim their rights and offer their perspectives and lend their hands to dismantle structures of oppression and build new patterns of justice. This all strengthens us. <coughs> Reaching out for other perspectives <coughs> will often bring encounters with hard truths. But it is not revisionist history, but restorative history. It is an intentional embrace of all that is and a recognition that as long as we are breathing, we will never lack the ability to learn something more, something deeper, something wider about who we are to ourselves and to one another and where we belong in this world which we share. So may it be.